Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. For a school like this, in this situation, they get into the Big Ten Conference, they look to up their game, and they say, what a perfect position we're in. We can do exactly what Nike did because we have this prominent alumnus who founded this uh, company, Under Armour, that's trying to compete with Nike. How lucky we are. But the pressure that comes with that, um, the pressure that comes with that is tremendous. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we speak to the author of University of Nike, Joshua Hunt, about the apparel and sneaker leviathan's lucrative and also alarmingly toxic relationship with higher ed, specifically at the University of Oregon. Also, I've got some choice words about Brazil, the 2014 World Cup, the 2016 Olympics, and their new proto-fascist leader, Jair Bolsonaro. I also have a Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down Awards, Kaepernick Watch, and more. But first, Joshua Hunt. Just as a a background for um, our listeners, can can you describe the relationship and the history uh, between the University of Oregon and Nike? Yeah, it's a... It's a long, it's a long relationship for sure. Going back to uh, the fact that that Phil Knight did his undergraduate degree there before going on to Stanford Business School, and in fact, uh, his his father also went there. Uh, Phil Knight, the former CEO and chairman and and co-founder of Nike, and um, the relationship doesn't really get interesting though until the. Uh, mid-1990s when the Oregon Ducks have a fluke appearance in the Rose Bowl. They're sort of not, not, a, not a Rose Bowl going team at the time, but they, they end up in the 1995 Rose Bowl. And Phil Knight decides maybe he ought to start using his, um, his box seats more often at Autzen Stadium. And uh, around this time, the University of Oregon president Dave Fronmeyer is looking for more outside money, looking for more private money, corporate money, uh, because in 1990, Oregon taxpayers passed this uh, really ruinous piece of legislation called Ballot Measure 5, which slashed taxpayer support for public schools and higher education specifically. So at the same time that uh, the University of Oregon is really hurting for money, uh, Phil Knight is paying more attention to what's going on with the University of Oregon's football program, and it's a particularly uh, 
it's particularly good timing uh, because uh, Michael Jordan has just announced his retirement pretty recently. And Nike is starting to think about doing for football what they've already done with basketball, which is start out in colleges and sort of, you know, build up a certain level of dominance in uh, in in uh, among the college players and then use that as a way into uh, having a bigger presence with the professional teams. And they were they were trying to get more NFL contracts at this time. So that's when the relationship start, starts getting interesting. Basically, the the. Some people at the University of Oregon, you know, said, hey, Phil, uh, you could really help us out here if you helped us pay for an indoor training facility for our football players. Because right now, all the top recruits on the West Coast are going to California. They don't want to come to Oregon where it's raining all the time and not have an indoor practice facility. So Phil Knight uh, helps pay for that. It's the first of. It's the first of many uh, impressive athletics facilities that he helps pay for on the University of Oregon campus. And so he's got this private, uh, what looks like from the outside, a philanthropic uh, relationship with the University of Oregon. And meanwhile, his, his company, Nike, is doing big, big apparel deals with the University of Oregon just like it's doing with many, many other schools. And so can you speak a little bit about what um, corroded the relationship in your mind? Like what turned it from this uh, financial relationship between, you know, this donation relationship between Nike and the University of Oregon? What turned it into something that you see as being more toxic? Well, you know, in a way, in a way, it, it was there was a toxic element to it from the very beginning because, uh, again, I, I use the the word investment because um, you know there's a reason a guy like Phil Knight always comes out on top in his deal making. It's because he's a businessman. He's looking to make a buck, um, and uh, so you know, like I said, it's no it's no coincidence that that Nike went um, looking to to make this relationship at the same time that it's trying to make inroads with college football. So they always had, they always had an interest that was not uh, necessarily altruistic. Uh, where, things, where things start to get uh, to looking a little more sinister is, um, well, it doesn't take long. It doesn't take long. Uh, first of all, um, I, used the t- I, I said that, that uh, you know, I specifically said that Phil Knight's uh, giving, his private giving to the University of Oregon looked philanthropic um you know like any billionaire uh giving away his money it's often a tax write-off um it's it's arguable to call it you know philanthropy uh and you know it usually buys them something whether that's big buildings with their name on it or some kind of control or some kind of access that they're looking for in the case of in the case of Nike and Phil Knight, uh, I would say on the Nike side, on the business side, things start getting sinister around the late 1990s when all of a sudden um, University of Oregon faculty members and people who are really in the know, including the director, you know, the guy who's in charge of communications for the school at that time, the guy who's in charge of telling journalists and everyone else, uh, you know, what's going on at the school, all of a sudden, he's called into a, a meeting one day, and he's told, hey, um, meet this guy and this gal and this guy. 
they're all with Nike and they've completely rebranded the university. They've come with this, they've come up with this great new logo for the university, this new brand identity for the university, and they're going to tell you all about it. And he's, you know, he's very shocked. This is, this is maybe arguably the best informed guy on campus. And all of a sudden he finds out that for months, uh, these Nike employees, these, these, these guys that, that work for a, uh, a corporation have been running around the school secretly, uh, sort of rejiggering the school's uh, future and, and, and the school's brand. It was a very weird thing at the time for a uh, corporation to, you know, rebrand a university. And um, so this is one of the one of the sort of this is where things start getting sinister on the Nike side. On the on the Phil Knight side, with regards to his his private giving, things start to get sinister also pretty quickly around that same time, actually, um, because one very unusual very sinister thing that happens is that Phil Knight starts supplementing the uh, University of Oregon president's uh, salary. So, um, you know, it, it's not an, it's not altogether unusual for some billionaire philanthropist to endow a chair at a university, for instance, uh, uh, so that there's a, um, you know, a, a so-and-so professor and, uh, you know, but the billionaire doesn't usually have any control over who's in that chair. Um, but in this case, uh, uh, Phil Knight was paying $40,000 directly as a supplement towards the University of Oregon president's salary. I think that that's highly unusual. I mean, someone someone that I was talking to about this recently who had read the book said, you know, uh, just imagine a uni today, imagine a, a university president somewhere in America uh, having their salary supplemented by the, you know, the head of a, uh, the head of a me uh, medical marijuana company or something like that, you know, there would be, there would probably be a good amount of outrage or, or the head, or if Mark Zuckerberg, you know, was paying part of the salary of the university president, there, there would probably be a fair amount of outrage, but. Well, was there outrage at the time or was there, this not revealed until far later? There was not, it was, it was. It was technically not kept secret because you could find out if you did some digging into what was going on at the at the State Board of Higher Education, uh, but it it was uh, it was certainly not very well reported on, and it was not discussed as being something controversial. Uh, now I, I say not technically secret because although they they certainly tried to keep it quiet, they didn't actively try to hide it. Um, Another sinister thing that happens around this time, which is very, very different, this is something they did try to keep very secret, was, and in fact, they effectively kept it secret until, until my book disclosed it. Um, so the, 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 the more sinister thing that happens is that um, uh, Phil Knight starts giving huge amounts of money to a nonprofit organization, which is run by the... Uh, University of Oregon's president, Dave Fronmeyer, who is uh, a former Oregon attorney general, a really prominent figure in, in Oregon. Anyone who's watched the Netflix documentary Wild Wild Country will m maybe recognize Dave Fronmeyer's name. Um, and uh, 
you know, this is this is really concerning because this was this was um, in 1999, for example, Phil and I gave two million dollars to this organization. This organization was called the is called to this day the Fanconi Anemia Research Fund, and it was dedicated to raising money uh, to research a potential cure for a rare genetic disease called Fanconi anemia, which afflicted the University of Oregon's president's uh, three daughters and had, in fact, by that time killed two of them and was on its way to killing the third daughter. Uh, so Phil Knight, being the largest donor, by far the largest donor to this nonprofit, gave him a huge amount of leverage over the University of Oregon president. And uh, the fact that it was totally secret and kept from the public and from any other university stakeholders made it all the more dangerous. And in fact, I describe, uh, 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 you know, in, a, in, in my book, I describe how that leverage was wielded by Knight to uh, help crush uh, a very important anti-sweatshop campus protest movement that had fomented around that time. And um, so th this is where things, to my mind, go from being a little shady, a little questionable, to just outright uh, being a corrupting influence on the school. Mm. And after you uh, published this, has there been any pushback from either Nike or uh, any of the other uh, shareholders in that process? There has been zero pushback from Nike. Uh, uh, I think Phil Knight is a smart enough guy and has weathered enough of these scandals over the year to know that it's just better not to comment on this sort of thing. Uh, there has been pushback from... Uh, Lynn Frohnmeyer, the, the widow of Dave Frohnmeyer. Dave Frohnmeyer passed away in uh, 2015. Uh, I expected some pushback from her. Uh, I mean, in 2015, when Dave Frohnmeyer died, she called up Phil Knight, she told me, and she said, uh, look, Dave was the big fundraiser for the organization. We don't know how we're going to go on at the same level of, of funding research that we have been without, his, without him around. Will you give us $20 million? Phil Knight said, I'll give you $10 million, $1 million at a time. And so for the, he's given her $3 million so far. He has pledged $7 million more to be spread out over the coming seven years. So she has a real incentive to, to um, keep that relationship with Phil Knight uh, a pleasant one for him. So I, I sympathize with her position. But... We have, uh, uh, you know, multiple, multiple verifiable sources that say things happen the way we describe them in the book. And in fact, public records also uh, show that uh, public records support our account of, of exactly what happens in the book. So, so Nike lays down this blueprint with the University of Oregon. How did it uh, metastasize out, out of that? Like, how did Nike then go forward and what, what's been its impact on higher ed more broadly? Well, this is uh, this is this is where you and I share some of the blame, right? This is where this is where uh, we as citizens and taxpayers share some of the blame. I mentioned this really ruinous piece of legislation, ballot measure five uh, in Oregon, which was, by the way, it was pushed by these very far right wing figures 
there's these fringe figures that have been around in Oregon, uh, groups like the Oregon Citizens Alliance and, you know, lots of states have these far right fringe conservative groups. In Oregon, they're particularly effective because uh, it doesn't take a lot of signatures to get something on the ballot in Oregon, for one thing. And you also don't need to, when, you, when you're collecting signatures in Oregon, to try and get a, something on the ballot. Um, you don't need to gather those signatures from a diversity of counties like you do in a lot of other states. You can, you can sort of focus on, okay, well, this is a really... This is a really red area, they'll support this, or this is a really blue area, they'll support that. And you can gather your signatures. And um, back in the late 80s, uh, you know, one of these, one of these guys, um, one of these conservative operatives, uh, even, even bought himself a signature gathering firm so that he could make money while pushing these, these sort of far-right measures and get them on the ballot. And so, you know, it starts with that. It starts with these... Um, these GOP or conservative efforts to to get uh, to get these big tax cuts on the ballot, specifically aimed at things like education, and that's what ballot measure five cut in Oregon. And Oregon was was doing this at a time when other schools were not. Uh, in 1990, uh, schools, uh, uh, public universities were not slashing their budgets. But cut to five, ten years later, and everyone's starting to follow Oregon down this path. And uh, so that's where things get really scary, right? Um, and at the same time, at the same time that, uh, that, 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 that citizens and taxpayers are disinvesting in, in state higher education, in, in public higher education, at the same time this is happening – Contracts for for you know television rights for um, college football games are and and basketball games are exploding. I mean, really exponentially. The contracts are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, the schools who are competitive, you know, are are fighting over more and more money. The and the schools that aren't competitive are struggling to get competitive because the strategy. For university, you know, for top university administrators, basically becomes here's you know here's what we do we we use our big time college football or basketball program to uh, we use it as a kind of a big billboard to advertise our school to to grow our brand and then we use that to attract more out of state students who pay higher tuition and then we just we go from there more and more and more students so. One effect well, of this, yeah, I wanted that, to interrupt you real quick yeah. to see, like, what's the cause and effect with that process and the issue of student debt? I mean, it's 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 devastating. I mean, it's played a, it's played a big role in this because well, this is an uh, important point to underline. You're saying you can't understand one without the other, right? I mean, I mean, uh, there's there's a lot of myths about big time college football and big time college basketball. And one of the more pernicious myths is that, uh, is that at these, at these big successful schools like Oregon, that it's self-sustaining and self-funding and that it makes all this money and it's not, and, and, and that it doesn't cause tuition to go up for, um, that's not true. It remains 
at, at Oregon and at other schools, big-time football, big-time basketball, it remains a drain on ordinary students, and it remains a uh, big factor in pushing up tuition. One way in which this happens is at the University of Oregon, for example, they build these big athletics facilities. They put Phil Knight's name on it or someone else's name on it, and they say, look, they paid for all this. Um, so, you know, what do you complain about? It attracts, uh, you know, more students to come to our campus. And um, meanwhile, the facilities management for that building uh, comes out of a general fund that's paid for by tuition dollars, which means that every student on campus, even non-student athletes who don't get to use these buildings, end up subsidizing hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars in uh, in 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 payment in in tuition dollars that go straight into the maintenance of these facilities or paying for the the people who who uh, work on them, repair them, and so forth, work in them. So that's one way that that uh, that tuition rises in part because of this. Another, I mean, speaking of the effect on the quality of education, you know, when your strategy is just to bring in more students and charge them higher tuition, not a very uh, you know, not a very um, forward-thinking strategy, I think. Um, one of the things that happens is class sizes balloon. So professors have uh, less, you know, one-on-one -on -one time for each individual student. Uh, quality of education certainly, certainly suffers there. And then, um, and then as they try and milk, I mean, if you look at University of Oregon's a, a great example. Tuition just every every year, every two years, it's it's going up. Sometimes, sometimes within the span of just two or three years, it's going up. You know, eight, ten percent. It's crazy that the tuition increases, and it's all because this this strategy is based simply on, well, let's use football to attract more students, get them to pay more tuition, and it has a really the focus on out-of-state students who, who in general pay higher tuition also has this side effect of um, kind of shutting out people who, who used to have a path to a cheaper in-state, you know, cheaper degree at their, at their in-state public state university. I mean, this, this for a long time was uh, a path to you know, upward social mobility. It was for me in, in Oregon, where, where I went to, to Portland State University as an undergraduate. Um, and I know it's important for a lot of people. And what, what many people have told me, and, you know, university presidents and so forth, they've said that this whole, this whole class of people are being priced out of an affordable public higher education. And so they're just not going to get one. I mean, for a while, there's been this trickle-down effect where they would maybe go to a, a slightly, uh, you know, instead of going to the flagship school, they'd go to maybe the second tier school in their state. And now the presidents of the second tier universities in states are telling me that, um, well, these students just are being priced out completely. They're, they're going to maybe go to community college uh, if they're lucky. And, I mean, speaking of the student debt crisis, one of the one of the worst things that happens as a result of this, because, I mean, one of the one of the terrible things that can happen, as you might imagine, when tuition 
jumps as high as 10% within two years is that someone who's on the, on the borderline already, someone who's barely making it, uh, and they're a freshman or a sophomore, they end up not getting to finish their degree. And so they end up with a good amount of debt, and they don't even get the degree. Yeah, that sounds very familiar. Um, it sounds like you can't, we can't even have a discussion about what the modern neoliberal university looks like and how it functions without speaking about companies like Nike and how they've facilitated that process. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And now, now I want to, we've spent a lot of time on this podcast speaking about the death of Jordan McNair at the University of Maryland, the football player who right. died in off-season drills um, during, during the off-season. Um, that's an Under Armour school, of course, the University of Maryland. Now, I know that you've said that the death of Jordan McNair, that you, we, we can make connections between this and UMD's emulation of the University of Nike blueprint. Can, can you speak about that? Yeah, I mean, one thing that I talk about in my book is the ways in which a close relationship with a corporate benefactor or a big-time billionaire, the ways in which these kinds of relationships seep into and corrupt basically every part of the institution from the top down, and the way they change not only how uh, top officials uh, uh, run the school, but how they even think about education, how they think about running the school. And so one of the examples that I use at the University of Oregon is the mishandling of sexual assault accusations, specifically against student athletes. Um, you know, these, these are routinely mishandled, and um, they're mishandled often because the people in charge uh, uh, have this moment. They can do not only the right thing, but what they're supposed to do, what the fe what some federal law, what's Title IX or the Clary Act, says they're supposed to do, and what's clearly in the best interest of the campus, uh, or they can do the thing that would protect the brand. They can do the thing that would keep things quiet, the thing that'll keep it out of the papers uh, for a little while. You know, what, in, in the case of Nike, the book started when I went to. Eugene uh, to do a few freelance stories for the New York Times about this freshman who had accused three of the school's basketball players of raping her. And what the school did with this was to bury the police report for a couple of months until the NCAA tournament play was finished. They started quietly making arrangements to transfer the students, the, the three accused rapists, to other schools. Uh, without letting anybody, anybody know about it. They kept the report of the crime out of the campus Clary log, which is, it was clearly supposed to go in there. You know, students, there's a federal law, the Clary Act, which says that, that students are supposed to have access to a public log that, that shows reports of certain violent crimes like rape. And they, they failed to do all of these things. And, and if you read the book, you'll see they did much worse all in the name of protecting the brand. And I suspect that when a full, when a full uh, post-mortem is done on this situation at, at Maryland, I suspect that we'll find something similar that happened because it's hard to imagine having a kind of training program 
that could kill a young man, a young, healthy 19-year-old athlete, it's hard to imagine having that kind of training regimen and not uh, passing at least a few points where people saw red flags and said, wait a minute, maybe this is a little extreme. And that, that's one of the things that happens when, when not just coaches, but also top administrators, university presidents and other top, administra top administrators of universities, when they become so focused on preserving this, this uh, relationship with their corporate benefactor and become so focused on protecting their brand, uh, not just their benefactor's brand, but the school's own brand, you know, they, this is one of the things they do. They ignore big red flags until something terrible happens, until something truly, truly tragic happens. And I suspect I will not be surprised at all if when the postmortem is done, we find out that, that, that there were red flags, prominent red flags, which were ignored in the case of Jordan McNair. And, uh, you know, furthermore, I think uh, we'll find that that it it is really tied to this this um, University of Nike, what I call the University of Nike blueprint, because, I mean, in Maryland, they explicitly said that uh, that they wanted to do what what Nike had done in Oregon. Uh, Maryland's athletic director a few years ago, Ke Kevin Anderson at the time, uh, said, I, he told the New York Times, I saw the beginnings of what Nike did with Oregon, and that's been our conversation from day one, that we can have that kind of relationship. And they said, before Nike got involved with the University of Oregon, nobody knew where Eugene was. And, you know, I think it, for a school like this, in this situation, they get into the Big Ten Conference, they, they, look, to, um, they look to up their game, and they say, what a perfect position we're in. We can do exactly what Nike did because we have this, this uh, prominent alumnus who, who founded this uh, company, Under Armour, that's trying to compete with Nike. Uh, you know, what a great, how lucky we are. Uh, but the pressure that comes with that, um, the pressure that comes with that is tremendous. I mean, if, if you look back through the history of college football scandals, going back to the first college football play, uh, uh, rule book, um, you know, when, when there's a, a big scandal, it usually involves pressure related to big, big money. Wow. So, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Um, I, I did want to ask you, I know we're running uh, low on time. I, I did want to ask you, um, after all the research you've done on Nike and after everything you know about Nike, well, what's your reaction to uh, the Colin Kaepernick Nike campaign? Like, what do you think when you see a resistance icon like Colin Kaepernick and then he's doing a commercial for Nike? What, what, what goes on in your brain? Well, look, I mean, first of all, I mean, uh, Kaepernick, of course, has all all my support. Um, I think what he's doing is tremendous, and and um, you know it's good to see him have you know any ally. Uh, but on the Nike side of things, I, it's it's so clearly just a a cynical branding exercise. I mean, um, it must have been one of the easiest decisions Nike ever made. I mean, people people. The way people have talked about it online, you'd think that um, 
you'd think that uh, you'd you'd guess maybe that Nike wrestled with decision with this decision. Not at all. Kaepernick was already an icon. There's nothing that Nike loves more than an icon, and um, and furthermore, uh, as I wrote in a in a piece for the Atlantic uh, when this when this all sort of happened when the Kaepernick ad came out, you know, if Nike does something, it's because they think it's good business. Period. That's that's the only that's the only reason that that I mean you don't like I said you don't you don't come out on the better end of every business deal you make if you're not always crunching the numbers and that's what Nike did they they crunched the numbers and um, look I have uh, you know I have I lived in Portland for a long time and I have friends that work at Nike and and um, one of them told me you know uh, a, a little while before. You and I knew about the Kaepernick thing when they when they announced it on campus. Uh, you know, Kaepernick came out. Um, you know, he said Phil Knight was there on campus. He's he's no longer the um, the CEO of the company. He's he's essentially retired. But he came out and and uh, was was seen around campus partying with everyone and you know celebrating uh, Kaepernick and all this. And um, you know, so. Some people uh, at Nike even even buy into their own mythology, and um, you know I've talked to activists who've who've highlighted some of the country's uh, labor abuses. One of them, Jim Keady, said that every time he meets a, 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 you know some Nike executive who's done some terrible thing that he's documented, they always tell him, "Hey, you know, I'm a good guy. I'm a family guy. I'm not a bad guy. I'm just trying to make a living. This sort of thing," and. Um, uh, but, you know, when it comes down to it, I mean, that that is about it. They're trying to make a living. They're trying to make a buck. And they certainly made a few bucks off uh, Colin Kaepernick and his and his image. You know, uh, again, this activist, Jim Keady, uh, said what I would have liked to see and what I might have given what, what he said he might have given Nike credit for is show Kaepernick kneeling, you know, show uh, show Kaepernick kneeling. Right. I can't breathe. On, on the on the uh, ad copy or something like this, you know, if you really want to be controversial, if you really want to be edgy, if you really want to support what it is that Kaepernick's standing for, as it is, um, you know, they're not really supporting what Kaepernick's standing for as much as they are supporting, uh, well, as much as they are co-opting his image and co-opting his, I mean, like I said, the man was an icon before Nike signed on with him. Right. Wow. No, that's exactly right. Um, and it is interesting that that's a Nike. We've talked about this on the show about how this is a Nike advertising pattern going back decades of taking this kind of edgy content, whether it's Spike Lee's filmmaking all the way to Kaepernick and stripping yeah. it of its content, like mining it for what people find attractive about it and then stripping it of its content. Right. Selling the dream, Jordan called it, right? He said, I mean, Michael Jordan, you know, famously said way back in the day that, um, you know, Phil and Nike have turned me into a dream. And um, and uh, that's about it. You know, you 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 um, disassociate the iconic image from from anything that might be the least bit controversial about it. And you associate it just with good, warm, fuzzy, uh, positive feelings and um you know, never mind that the shoes are being made in a in a sweatshop in terrible conditions by um, you know impoverished people. Uh, 
will never, nevertheless try and associate the brand with some kind of luxury and some kind of, uh, you know, trendy lefty message. Uh, you know, speaking of Nike spokespeople, when I was writing this book, uh, you know, you often try and get inside the head of a subject and you can't help but wonder, you know, a bit more about their, their personality when you read about all these things that they do. And, um, in interviews, I found that, and, and even in his memoir, Phil Knight always talks about Tiger Woods and sort of relating so well to Tiger Woods is, you know, Tiger Woods is the, the Nike athlete that he kind of uh, really got along with and, and really sort of, I think, sees himself as slightly. And I always, when I, when I was reading the book, when I was reading all this research about him and writing the book, I couldn't help but think of Lance Armstrong over and over again. It's all I could think of is these these two men seem so similar to me that 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 kind of uh, bloodthirsty competitiveness that Lance Armstrong had and his his truly iron will to do anything that it took to not just to win, but not to lose. And to really oftentimes it seemed like he really just wanted to hurt the other guy. And uh, and uh, to me, that's the Nike athlete that that Phil Knight most resembles looking back across his life and how he's lived it. Wow. And just one last question for you. I asked this, Josh, of everybody we have on the show. Um, the book is terrific. It's the University of Nike. Um, as you were working on it, what kind of music did you listen to? What got you through as you were trying to push through and finish this book? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I have, so in the, when it comes to the, when it comes to the writing part of it, uh, I, I just can't listen to music with lyrics. It, it, it's too distracting. I'm a little a little too simple-minded for it. So when it comes to uh, the writing, I listen to a lot of mental stuff that I like. Uh, John Fahey, a lot of John Fahey. Uh, the uh, great um, instrumental uh, guitarist. Uh, I think he called himself American Primitive, and um, and a lot of uh, Glenn Gould and Eric Satie and things like that. Um, for the uh, reporting part of it, I did a lot of this reporting on the University of Oregon campus, and so um, you know I listened to uh, basically a lot of the music that people were listening to on campus at the time. <laughs> so. Whatever was hot with the college kid. Cool. That's awesome, Josh. Hey, um, thank you so much for joining us here on the Edge of Sports podcast. Uh, the book is University of Nike. The author is Joshua Hunt. Really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me. Terrific. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast. The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation Magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe and now 
back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about what's happening in Brazil. Okay, look, there are communities in Brazil living in a state of terror as I'm doing this podcast. The country's new president-elect, Jair Bolsonaro, is a proud proto-fascist. Imagine Donald Trump with the volume turned up to 11 in a country with far weaker democratic guardrails against authoritarian tendencies. Bolsonaro traffics regularly and proudly in openly racist comments, calling black activists animals who should go back to the zoo. He once bleated that a female political rival wasn't worth raping. He vowed as a candidate that political opponents faced either exile or jail and said he would put an end to all types of activism in Brazil. That's a quote. Already, political repression has reared its head in Brazil's universities, with reports of classes being invaded by troops, books on fascism being seized, and banners being torn down. This is a president who aspires to be a military dictator in a country that has only been a political democracy for three decades. And Trump's national security advisor, John Bolton, has chillingly called this a welcome development in the region. It's a terrifying moment, and many are wondering how this right-wing authoritarian clawed his way to power. The question has many complicated answers rooted in Brazil's history and politics. But one aspect is the nations hosting the World Cup in 2014 and then the Olympics in 2016. Both mega events were ushered in by the Social Democratic PT, or Workers' Party, under the leadership of Luis Lula da Silva. Both cost billions of dollars to stage. Both arrived with a remarkable amount of promise as the economy was on a historic hot streak with unprecedented growth in the GDP. When securing the Olympics, Lula boasted that, quote, Brazil has left behind the level of second-class countries and entered the rank of first countries. Today we earned respect. The world has finally recognized that this is Brazil's time. But the World Cup and Olympics did not bring glory and monetary largesse. Rather, they brought, as they invariably do, corruption, displacement, and hyper-militarization. And each of these factors helped lay the groundwork for the rapid rise of the once fringe figure of Bolsonaro. As Brazil's economy stalled, the glittering new stadiums became a highly visible symbol of corruption. As big corporations landed sweetheart contracts and the rich rooted the public coffers, promised social programs were neglected, and ordinary Brazilians took to the streets in mass protests. Some of these protests were led by right-wing forces, others by political groups to the left of the PT. As Chris Gaffney, a former professional soccer player who was a professor in Rio during this time, told me, the corruption that unfolded as part of the mega events could be considered an important part of the growing dissatisfaction with the PT and their inability to deliver on enduring structural reform. It set the stage, Gaffney said, for Bolsonaro to, quote, rip down the remnants of representative democracy in Brazil. In truth, the erosion of democracy had already begun during the lead-up to the games. In the state of exception of frenetic destruction and forced displacement of communities such as Via Autodromo, democratic checks were openly flaunted for the sake of accommodating the World Cup and Olympics. The ability of Bolsonaro to rip down the remnants was also aided by the billions of dollars in surveillance technologies and crowd control weapons brought into the country for the World Cup and Olympic Games. The companies most responsible for selling and educating Brazil in the brutal arts of counterinsurgency have been Rafael and Elbit, two Israeli firms that sell the idea that they have the tech most able to corral and oppress restive populations. 
Bolsonaro and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, not surprisingly, have developed an instant mutual admiration rooted in right-wing nationalism, arms-dealing, and bigotry, with Bolsonaro announcing he will follow Trump's lead and move the Brazilian embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Meanwhile, Brazil remains more violent than ever, with 63,000 murders occurring in 2017. This has been another key factor fueling the rise of Bolsonaro, who promises to rule with a strong hand and has told police that they should shoot criminals on sight. The World Cup and Olympics have beaten Brazil down. It is a distraction with bright lights and a festival atmosphere, with something far more sinister lurking in the shadows. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award. Stand up! goes to Athletes for Impact, which is an organization of athletes largely centered around the WNBA, who signed on to a broad statement calling for unity against the hate crimes and racism inspired by Trump, and also called for people to get out and vote this past Tuesday. Uh, The athletes involved who put their names on this statement, which was a terrific statement that was uncompromising, uh, it was people like Diana Taurasi, Brianna Stewart... Sue Bird, then there was Megan Rapinoe, 1968 Olympian John Carlos, and many more. People can go to the Edge of Sports Twitter feed or thenation.com if you want to read the statement and see all the athletes who signed on to this. But it was very brave because it wasn't just saying give peace a chance or stop the hate. It linked some of the horrific things we've seen happen in recent weeks in this country to the rhetoric of the Trump administration and called for resistance and solidarity. So that's who the Just Stand Up Award goes to. It goes to the Athletes for Impact. For more information on Athletes for Impact, they got a website, just put it in the Googles. The Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. I mean, it's going to Jerry Jones, owner of the Dallas Cowboys, for no other reason that Stephen A. Smith eviscerated the Dallas Cowboys and their fan base uh, before the Monday night football game a week ago. And this is just an excuse for me to play this audio from Stephen A. Smith as he took Michael Irvin former Dallas Cowboy, NFL Hall of Famer, took him to the proverbial woodshed and made it very plain as to why the Dallas Cowboys really need to just sit their asses down. You ready for notes? Because I got Stevens A list, all right? Y'all know what time it is. Let's get right to it. Number two on the list, the problem with America's team, Jerry Jones. That's what it is. Let's go right here. The problem is he knows he knows football. He thinks he knows too much damn football, and he wants to do what he wants to do, what he wants to do, and he wants to hire people that he loves. He wants to hire people that he wants to bring home for Thanksgiving dinner. That's what.
what he wants to do. It's, it's a priority to have a great relationship with him instead of win damn football games. Evidence, no damn Super Bowl. Number one on the list. Cowboys fans. Team. What is the problem with that? Guess what? If you know the fans are going to come no matter what, if they're going to support you no matter what, if they're going to stand by you no matter what, guess what? The priority doesn't become winning because you don't have to worry about losing them. The Dallas Cowboy fans do not hold the Dallas Cowboys accountable. That's one of the reasons why you're the most disgusting, nauseated fan base in American history. That's my list. This is what it is. I said it. You know 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 it. Forget you. What are you saying? You know what time it is. What's up? And now it's time for the part of the show we call Kaepernick Watch. The latest comings and goings with Colin Kaepernick. I'm actually not going to talk about Colin Kaepernick today, but Colin Kaepernick's compatriot, Eric Reed. Eric Reed has been terrific since coming back into the league playing for the Carolina Panthers. He has been absolutely uncompromising in interviews. People are asking him how it's going. Is it going well? Uh, how's it going taking a knee? And he's basically just said over and over again, you know, things are fine and good, but things aren't going to be whole again until Colin Kaepernick is back in the NFL. He's been a relentless truth teller to right in the faces of the NFL. He tells on them at every opportunity. Even when he was asked what Ron Rivera, his coach for the Carolina Panthers, thinks about him kneeling before the anthem, Eric Reed shrugs his shoulders and just says, well, he doesn't really have a choice. It's not like he could stop me. So this is who Eric Reed is. Now, Eric Reed this past week also went public with the fact that the NFL has drug tested Eric Reed five times since he's come back into the league. And he said, this is like the fifth time since I've been here. They're not going to catch me. And it, it's so interesting because these drug tests are supposed to be random. And the chances of being tested five times in the, what is it, like three weeks that Eric Reed has been back in the NFL? Someone did the math on this. I mean, it's an astronomical number. So for the NFL to say that they're not targeting Eric Reed uh, is an absolute joke. Uh, and Eric Reed, though, has gone public with it, which has forced the NFL on the defensive, and they've had to issue all these statements that he's not being targeted. But we all know the truth. And so the Kaepernick watch this week is just a shout-out to Eric Reed for continuing to shed light where most people would be too afraid in the National Football League. He is truly a free man playing in this league, and it's a beautiful thing to watch. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much, Joshua Hunt. People should read the book, University of Nike. It really is quite good. Uh, thank you so much to my producer. Thank you so much to The Nation Magazine for sponsoring this podcast. If you like the podcast, please go to Stitcher, iTunes, or your podcast app of choice and give a rating, uh, leave a little note. All those things make a huge difference for us. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.